Wednesday, the 20th of September, 2017. Wimbledon, Southwest London, England. A local to Wimbledon noticed a plume of thick black smoke rising from the garden behind their neighbor's home. Concerned that perhaps a shed had been set alight, this local tried to speak with their neighbor to see if they were aware of the blaze, but they didn't get a response. And so they decided to wait for a little while thinking that maybe it was just a bonfire Though, three and a half hours later, with the fire still burning and still no word from their neighbours, the local contacted the emergency services and asked for the fire brigade. And what the firefighters would find when they arrived at the property to extinguish the fire would be a sight from their darkest nightmares. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve deep into this case, I'd just like to thank Skillshare for sponsoring this episode. Now, I'm sure you've heard of Skillshare before, and that's because they're an outstanding online learning community with literally thousands of super interesting classes available worldwide. You can explore brand new skills or deepen your current understanding of your passions or just get absolutely lost in the creativity on Skillshare. I use Skillshare to learn how to use DaVinci Resolve, which is the editing software that I use to make my videos. I also used it to learn how to make good thumbnails for my videos too. And on top of that, I use Skillshare to learn about knitting cables, which if you've been here a while, you'll know that I am a massive knitter. I love to knit and the classes available in Skillshare, especially around knitting and those kind of crafts are super useful for touching up or learning a brand new skill. At the moment though, I'm currently learning about the psychology of crime by Margit Averdyke. I love expanding my understanding of the people we discuss on my channel and learning how they tick is vital to establishing what exactly drives somebody to commit a crime. Skillshare is created specifically for learning, meaning that there are no ads and they're constantly launching new premium classes so that you can stay focused and follow wherever your creativity takes you. And Skillshare has a treat in store for you for the first 1,000 of my subscribers to click the link at the top of the description you'll back yourself a one-month free trial to Skillshare so that you can start exploring your creativity today. Be quick though, as only 1,000 people will get the free trial. Thank you again to Skillshare for sponsoring this episode. It's brands like Skillshare that make content like this possible. Now, back to the case. Sophie Madeline Danielle Lyonnais was born on Sunday the 7th of January 1996 to parents Catherine Develon and Patrick Lyonnais in Troyes, Department de Loube, Champagne, Ardennes, France. When Sophie was young, her parents Catherine and Patrick filed for divorce and Catherine went on to marry a man called Stéphane d'Avalon, who became Sophie's stepfather. It's not clear when exactly this divorce and the second marriage occurred, and how close they were together, or whether they were related events, but what we do know is that Sophie remained close to both of her parents in the years that followed. As Sophie grew up, her love for the care of children also grew exponentially, 
And it wasn't long before Sophie realised that it was a career path that she was destined for. Sophie was described as being a pearl, kind and gentle, someone who loved everyone and loved to make other people happy. She was a quiet and shy girl with a love for animals and a hatred for suffering or injustice. After Sophie graduated from school, following her passion for childcare, she went on to study and complete a vocational course in the field. Though in the area where she lived in Troyes, there weren't many job opportunities in the childcare field, and so Sophie turned her attention to further afield, international. It wasn't long after graduating that Sophie was actually offered a position as an au pair in London, England. It was an amazing opportunity for Sophie, who thought it would be perfect for expanding her English vocabulary and speaking skills while working in her dream field and earning experience in childcare. For those of you who may not be aware, according to AuPairWorld.com, an au pair is a young girl, typically aged between 18 to 30, who travels to a foreign country for a defined period of time to live with a host family. The au pair supports the host family with childcare and light housework while learning the language and culture of the host country. The au pair is considered as a full member of the family during the temporary period of the au pair's stay. As such, he or she helps the family with childcare and can be asked to assume some light household tasks. In return, the host family provides free board and lodging, as well as pocket money. However, the au pair is neither a housekeeper nor a nanny. Au pairs are unmarried and do not have children of their own. The main purpose of the au pair placements is a cultural exchange, which gives the au pair an opportunity to improve his or her language skills. For this reason, childminding in your own country doesn't count as an au pair stay. The au pair should also attend a language course in the host country. He or she should, however, have some basic language skills beforehand. Whether it is the au pair or the host family who pays for the language course depends on the prevailing practice of the relevant host country. The same applies to the cost of travel and insurance. Anxious for such a massive change, yet still excited for what the future held for Sophie, she boarded a flight to London in January of 2016, shortly after her 20th birthday. Her employers had been a couple who were actually French nationals, who were called Sabrina Coudier and Wissa Madouini, known to most as Sam. And they lived on Wimbledon Park Road in Southfields, which is in the southwest of London. Sabrina Coudier, born Nafissa Coudier, was born in northern Algeria in December of 1983, though when she was still a young child, her family relocated to France. Not all too much is known about her upbringing, but what we do know is that by her 18th birthday, she was suffering from severe mental health issues. On her 18th birthday in December of 2001, Sabrina jumped from a fourth floor balcony in an apparent suicide attempt. This attempt on her own life failed though, and saw her suffer from serious back injuries, something that would cause her pain likely throughout her entire life. The following year, in 2002, Sabrina had started a short-term position selling crepes at a funfair near her home in the outskirts of Paris, and it was as she was working this job that she met a man called Wissem Madouini. Wissem told Sabrina to call him Sam, which is what we'll be calling him for the rest of this video, and he had been studying for his master's degree at Pantheon Assas University in Paris at the time. Sam, as soon as he laid eyes on Sabrina, fell head over heels. Sabrina was a very beautiful woman, and Sam became very shy in her presence. He was besotted by her. 
Despite this, Sabrina met and started dating a different man who she actually ended up getting engaged to, though in 2003, when Sabrina was 20 years old, the engagement to this other man was called off, which sent Sabrina's mental health spiraling. As a result of the broken off engagement, Sabrina drank cleaning fluid in another apparent suicide attempt. This second attempt failed, and she soon recovered from it, and not long afterwards, Sabrina began dating Sam. Now, the relationship between Sabrina and Sam was extremely turbulent. Sabrina had frequent violent outbursts, which saw the couple fighting constantly. They would break up and then get back together again like clockwork. Though, Sabrina would later claim that she believed Sam saw the relationship as solely something for sex, money, and nothing else. During one of the couple's breakups, Sabrina met another man who was a forklift driver from Paris, who she started a new relationship with. But during the course of this new relationship, Sabrina just up and left and abandoned both this new man and Sam in Paris. According to this forklift driver, Sabrina could be as lovable as she could be detestable. She would lie. Despite the sudden disappearance, Sam remained obsessed with Sabrina and found out that she had actually moved to London and had started work as a nanny, and so Sam followed her. He ended up landing a job as a financial analyst for a French banking society in London. Sam and Sabrina ended up seeing each other again, and once again, Sabrina ended up meeting another man in 2011. You see, Sam was weak and submissive to Sabrina. Whenever she was off with other men, he would wait quietly for her to return to him. And this new man was actually someone of notability. He was a founding member of the band Boyzone, Mark Walton. Mark had first seen Sabrina while at a Nat West bank in Notting Hill in West London, and he was completely and entirely captivated by Sabrina and her beauty. He asked the bank manager who the pretty woman was, and the manager told him that she had inquired about Mark too. It must be noted that Sabrina didn't actually work at the bank, but was actually involved in a pyramid scheme selling products for a telecommunications company at the time. As you do. Sabrina had dreams of a celebrity lifestyle, being part of the social elite, and it seemed like those dreams for Sabrina were about to come true. Mark and Sabrina began dating, and Mark actually provided her with financial support so that she could launch a career in the fashion and makeup industry. After just six weeks of the pair meeting, Mark Walton began paying a few thousand pounds a month to support her. And after a year of dating, they moved in together in Queensway in West London. The relationship between the couple only lasted for two years, and Mark would later describe Sabrina as being calculating, manipulative, and likely to flip and go crazy at any moment. Police records actually shows that Sabrina had contacted the authorities multiple times between 2012 and 2017. On the 16th of July 2012, Sabrina reported a crazy argument that she'd had with Mark Walton and accused him of cheating. Not sure why that needed to come to the police's attention, but hey-ho. Though, just a few days later, the pair did get back together. And then, on the 30th of October 2012, she contacted the police again and alleged that Mark Walton had been violent towards her three times during their relationship. On the 6th of December 2012, Sabrina made another complaint to the authorities about 60 voicemails from Mark Walton, none of which actually contained any threats. And then, in March of 2014, Sabrina claimed to the authorities that she had been hacked by Mark Walton, though, when the police investigated, they found only nice emails sent by Mark to her, which contained apologies and expressions of love. 
On the 28th of April 2014, Sabrina was found by the police outside her home in Wimbledon Park Road, quote, very agitated, kicking and screaming. She had told the police that Mark Walton had been using black magic to control her and that there was nothing she could do about it. Between the months of May and June of 2014, Sabrina made constant complaints to the police, stating that they weren't taking her allegations about Mark Walton seriously. And then on the 4th of July 2014, she alleged to the authorities that Mark had hacked her Facebook account and had breached a non-molestation order. It is important to establish that the relationship between Sabrina and Mark Walton ended in 2013, after Sabrina had alleged that she had miscarried his child before running off back to Paris. Though she was soon back in London and had restarted her relationship with Sam. Despite Sabrina and Mark breaking up, Mark still financially supported her. She would ask Mark for money every three or so months, which Mark happily handed over. And when she asked Mark for £15,000 for a house deposit to buy a home with Sam in Southfields, London, Mark agreed. That was despite him sending her £20,000 just eight months earlier. Even with all of this financial support, Sabrina continued to make complaints about Mark to the police. And the police quickly noted that there was never any case to be brought against Mark Walton, who actually lived in Los Angeles. On the 19th of September 2015, Sabrina created a fake Facebook account, through which she accused Mark Walton of being a pedophile. And as a result of this fake account, Sabrina actually received a caution from the police, but that caution didn't stop her. On the 14th of March 2016, Sabrina made another accusation that alleged that Mark Walton had sexually abused a cat that she owned. Bear in mind, um, it's very important to note that she had never owned a cat at all, so this cat didn't even exist, and that she alleged that Mark had bribed social services to make life hard for her. You see, Sabrina actually had two sons. Her first son had been fathered by the forklift driver that she had dated when she had been living in Paris, and the second son was alleged to have been fathered by Mark Walton, but it's not entirely clear. The second son had been born in 2013, when the newborn had been five months old. And when the newborn was five months old at the same time, Sabrina and Sam rented the house on Wimbledon Park Road in London. Both of Sabrina's children attended local schools, and due to the nature of Sam's job, he was oftentimes away from home on work trips for long extended periods of time. This saw Sabrina stretched thin, as she had been working in the fashion industry, and so she decided that she wanted to hire a nanny to help look after the children. This nanny job, known as an au pair, was then scheduled for a trial period of two weeks in April of 2015 to see how things went, and it went really well. And so it was set for their au pair, 20-year-old French national Sophie Lyonnais, to begin working for Sabrina and Sam as a full-time nanny and au pair from January of 2016. Sophie had actually been introduced to Sabrina for the au pair job through a friend of Sabrina's brother, and it seemed like the perfect opportunity for the young girl. And so shortly after her 20th birthday, Sophie left her hometown in France and made the journey across the seas to Sabrina's flat in London. The flat that Sabrina, her two kids, Sam and now Sophie lived in was a small two-bedroom garden flat, and it saw Sophie having to sleep in the same bedroom as the two boys. Sophie, a complete outsider in a new and unknown country, just as with many other au pairs, found herself quickly isolated. She didn't know anyone outside of the family she was staying with, and networking for her was practically impossible. 
Sadly, this kind of isolation can easily be preyed upon by people with sinister intentions, a way of exploiting the au pair that works for them. Sophie works long hours for Sabrina and her family, waking up early to take the children to school, doing the housework and domestic chores, picking the children up, helping them with their homework, cooking dinner, cleaning up. She would wake up, work the entire day without a moment's break, and before she knew it, she was back in bed falling asleep, ready to repeat the long hours in a vicious cycle. Despite these long hours, Sophie stayed on working for Sabrina and her family. Perhaps she was enjoying the work she was doing, or was gracious for Sabrina for providing a roof over her head, it's unclear. In fact, one explanation as for why Sophie stayed working for Sabrina could be the fact that they actually took her passports from her and held it for her. She had no means for escape. That, by the way, that action is extremely illegal. But what we do know was that it wouldn't be long before Sophie would bear witness to Sabrina's strange and violent behaviours. As 2016 progressed, Sabrina began to display signs of fixations, obsession, paranoia and delusions, all centred around her celebrity ex-boyfriend, Mark Walton. As we spoke about earlier, Sabrina made several complaints and accusations to the local authorities all surrounding Mark Walton. And in 2017, she made further complaints and public allegations against Mark Walton, which, for the record, he has always denied, where she told social services that he had sexually abused her sons and had behaved violently towards her. As we touched on earlier, though, Sabrina was actually arrested and was given a caution for sending malicious communications relating to Mark Walton. And Sophie, heartbreakingly, became caught up in Sabrina's delusional fantasies. In August of 2017, Sabrina contacted the police again and told them that Sophie had taken her youngest son to meet Mark Walton in May of 2017, and that Mark had told her youngest son that he was his real father and that he was going to shoot his family with a gun. Sabrina began to fall into this fictitious world, a world in which Mark Walton was out to get her, a world in which Sophie and Mark were dating, a world in which she was being stalked and threatened. But Mark Walton and Sophie Lyonet had never once met one another. In fact, they'd never even heard of one another, never spoken to each other, didn't even know the other existed. It was all a delusion that appeared very real to Sabrina. They had no basis, in fact, whatsoever. Mark Walton hadn't even been in London at the time. He was over in his home in Los Angeles, none the wiser of the horrors that were beginning to unfold, horrors that Sabrina was implicating him in. And as these delusions manifested further, Sabrina's treatment of Sophie worsened dramatically. Sophie was treated in a way that many describe as being consistent with that of modern-day slavery. She was not allowed to eat with Sabrina and her family, she wasn't paid for her work, and she was forbidden from communicating with anyone outside of the four walls that they kept her prisoner in. Over the course of Sophie's time staying with Sabrina and her family, Sophie did maintain contact with her parents. And at first, she described herself as being happy and well-paid, though during the last six months of her life working for Sabrina, she started to say how she was growing bored and that the children had become difficult to manage and that she wanted to come home. Sophie never once told her parents, whether by personal choice or whether she wasn't allowed to is unclear, about the abuse that she was enduring at the hands of her hosts. According to court documents, Sophie had been imprisoned by Sabrina and her family by August of 2017, 
And it was at around this time that Sophie actually contacted her mother and asked for money so that she could travel back home to France. Unbeknownst to Sophie, she would never make that journey home. Sabrina and Sam started interrogating Sophie based on Sabrina's delusions. Interrogations that lasted six weeks from the 8th of August 2017 until late September of the same year. 18 audio files and video recordings were made taping this interrogation on a mobile phone owned by either Sabrina or Sam, with each session designed to make Sophie confess. They wanted Sophie to confess to being in cahoots with Mark Walton and that they were working together to ruin Sabrina's life. Sabrina was trying to get Sophie to confess to all manner of things, including a delusion that Mark Walton had been to the family home and had been let in by Sophie when the family hadn't been there. Sabrina alleged that Sophie had let Mark stay overnight in the house too, and that they had been working together on plans involving illegal substances and sex and other illegal activities, working to hurt Sabrina's family in one way or another. On one occasion, Sabrina went into a local corner shop and asked the shopkeeper whether he had seen Mark Walton around, and when the shopkeeper said that no, he hadn't, he didn't know who he was, Sabrina told him that Mark Walton was a very dangerous man who was making threats towards her and her family. The shopkeeper, naturally, asked Sabrina whether she had contacted the police, and she told him that she was going to, but that she just wanted him, the shopkeeper, to know that Mark Walton was dangerous. Though, as we know, this is all completely untrue. Mark Walton was thousands of miles away at the time at his home in Los Angeles, completely unaware of what was going on back in London. In fact, he had stopped financially supporting Sabrina three or four months prior to this happening, and no contact had been made since that point. Sabrina and Sam threatened Sophie with imprisonment, rape, and further violence as they assaulted her to extract these confessions that they wanted. It's important to note that Sam was the one who actually carried out the violent assaults against Sophie, while Sabrina was the one who was telling him what to do. He seemed just as wrapped up in Sabrina's delusions as she had been. It's believed that Sabrina and Sam were suffering from a shared psychotic disorder known as folly ado. According to Medscape.com, folly ado is a rare delusional disorder shared by two or occasionally more people with close emotional ties. Let's jump over to a good friend of mine, Dr. Soham Das, who is a consultant forensic psychiatrist who's going to tell us a bit more about the disorder Folly Adu. Hello, everybody. My name is Dr. Shaham Das. I'm a consultant forensic psychiatrist and the host of the YouTube channel A Psych for Sore Minds. So, Folly Adu. Literally translated, it means madness of two. And technically it can be in regards to any mental disorder, but in actuality, it's used to describe delusions when delusions are shared. So delusions are fixed, unshakable beliefs that don't come from an understandable source. So they're not in the context of the sufferer's upbringing and social situation. Now that bit is important and I'll come back to it a bit later. Delusions, when it comes to folly dirt, are usually paranoid or persecutory delusions. So typically they might be that the sufferer is being followed or that strangers want to harm them or are laughing at them or are poisoning their food or are talking about them. These kind of delusions are seen very commonly in disorders like schizophrenia or delusional disorder. So when folly dirt actually occurs, what happens is that a delusion spreads from one mentally ill person to another. 
and usually those people are closely connected, so family members, and usually they're quite isolated and marginalised from society, so it means they don't have other voices of reasons, they don't have other perspectives on a regular basis. Now, the reason I mentioned that delusions have to be outside of somebody's social context is basically because in some extreme religious sects or even cults, arguably some very bizarre ideas are spread. So the idea that other religions are evil or you know, um, very negative thoughts against sexuality or that the leader of this cult has supernatural powers. Technically, those are overvalued ideas, not delusions, because they're in keeping with the culture uh, and the teachings in that particular set of society. So even though they might spread, that's not technically folie a deux because they're not delusions. Folie a deux is extremely rare. I've actually only seen one case of it in my entire career and I've done a video about that on my YouTube channel, A Psych for Sore Minds, if you want to check it out. It's titled A Madness Shared by Two and most psychiatrists won't see it at all in their careers. In terms of other high-profile cases of folie a deux, another one which jumps to mind is the Ericsson twins. So in May 2008, these two twins, Sabina and Ursula, were travelling from Liverpool to London and they got out of a bus and they were literally jumping into traffic intentionally because of these paranoid delusions they had that people were chasing them and wanting to kill them. And then when the police tried to help them and the paramedics, they started attacking the professionals because they believed these people were trying to steal their organs. And if you're interested in this case, there's actually quite a lot of footage of this happening live. So of the, of the twins jumping into traffic because the police at the time were being followed by a camera crew. What's tragic and shocking about this case is that one of the twins, Ursula, was so badly injured, she was in hospital, but Sabina, even though she was knocked unconscious, she actually left hospital and amazingly was released by police the next day. And that following day, she went on to kill a random stranger. And then, of course, the other high-profile case would be this one that Josh is talking about, Sophie Lyonnais. So before I go, I just want to introduce you to my channel, A Psych for Sore Minds. If you're interested in the psychoanalysis of high-profile true crime cases, then you'll love my channel. I talk about a range of issues related to mental illness and criminality and the crossover between the two. Shout out to my boy, Joshua Miles. Thank you for having me on your channel. It's always a pleasure to discuss your many fascinating cases. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A special thanks to Dr. Saham Das for coming on and sharing his professional knowledge with us. Be sure to go check out his channel. You can find a link in the description or in the pinned comments below. And this shared psychosis between the couple would see true horrors befalling the local community. After weeks of Sophie pleading with Sabrina and Sam, telling them that she's innocent, and after days of being subjected to waterboarding and being interrogated while she was in her underwear in a bath of water, Sophie finally broke. She admitted to Sabrina and Sam that she had visited Mark Walton, that she had sex with him, and that she had 
drugged everyone in the house so that he could sneak into the flat and sexually abuse Sabrina. Again, I must note that Mark Walton was not in the country at this time and this forced confession was Sophie's desperate attempt to stop the abuse and torture that she was being subjected to. A photograph of Sophie after suffering this abuse, the last photo of Sophie, is gut-wrenching to view. I'm going to put it on screen now, but for those who do not wish to see, I will say when it's not on screen anymore. Just before midnight on Monday the 18th of September 2017, the last audio recording of Sophie still alive was made. The recording is harrowing. You can hear Sophie screaming for her life and agreeing to every allegation brought against her. She just wanted to go home. The photograph of Sophie is not on screen anymore, so those of you who turned away can look again. It was the final interrogation, after which Sabrina and Sam placed Sophie in the bathtub full of water where they murdered her. Now the exact means of how they did so is unclear, but what we do know is that almost immediately afterwards, Sabrina and Sam had sex, literally next to her body. On the following day, on the 19th of September 2017, Sabrina and Sam told Sabrina's oldest child that Sophie had returned back to France and that she'd left the job, though we know now that she had been murdered and her body had been concealed, likely in a suitcase, somewhere in their property. Sabrina and Sam then plotted to tell anyone who asked that Sophie had left and had returned back to France, and then they settled on how they were going to get rid of her body. The following day, at just after 8.30am in the morning, CCTV images capture Sam dropping off Sabrina's two children at school. This was part of the children's routine that would have been carried out by Sophie, but nobody really made note of the change, everyone going about their own business. At 1.42pm on the same day, Sam was captured by CCTV at a local shop, making some purchases before leaving four minutes later at 1.46pm. Sam was collecting supplies for his and Sabrina's plans to dispose of Sophie's body. Sam lit a bonfire in the couple's garden, on which he set Sophie's remains alight. And to mask the smell, he lit up a barbecue and started cooking chicken and other meats, all in an attempt to throw anyone off. The fire itself was set near to the French doors at the rear of the property, as it was out of the sight of the neighbours. Though the neighbours took note of the plume of smoke coming from their garden, it's also important to note that the smell of burning flesh is a very, very pungent smell. So even cooking this chicken or other meats in the barbecue would not nearly have been enough to mask that smell. So the neighbours also took note of this foul aroma with this plume of smoke. Meanwhile, Sabrina went to her children's school and picked up her two kids and took them to an after-school trampoline club between 5.39pm and 6.36pm. One of the neighbours to Sabrina and Sam's property had noticed a thick plume of smoke and tried to inquire at their house as to what was going on, but they received no reply. And so the neighbour, a few hours later, dialed 999 for the emergency services and told them that there had been a fire burning in their neighbour's back garden for about three and a half hours over the course of the afternoon. The fire brigade rushed to the premises and arrived at 6.20pm, shortly before Sabrina's kids' trampolining club was due to end. It appears that Sabrina had used the club as a means for an alibi, something she'd tried to lean on later on in this case. The fire brigade quickly extinguished the fire, and that was when the firefighters took a closer look at what had been burning. They found a pair of burnt and singed glasses, and then body parts. The burnt remains of Sophie Lyonnais revealed themselves to the firefighters, and the police were immediately called. When they asked Sam what he had been burning, he simply replied by saying, quote, it is a sheep. 
When the police arrived, they arrested Sam and took him to the Wandsworth police station. It is important to note that they also found Sophie's suitcases in the couple's shed. I'll put a picture of that on the screen now. It was initially believed by the authorities that the remains that had been discovered were that of a child, due to the fact that they were so small. When Sam was asked about this at the police station, he replied by simply saying, it's not a child. I must also say that due to the state of malnutrition that Sophie was in when she had died, due to the family not feeding her and her being so thin, that contributed to the police's hypothesis that the remains were that of a child. Sam was then interviewed, but refused to answer any of the questions they were asked of him. A post-mortem forensic examination of the remains were then conducted. It's important to note that the exact cause of death has never been determined, but evidence of violent assaults were found on examination. According to court documents, quote, Professor Mangham was able to distinguish between those fractures caused by the heat of the fire after death and those fractures caused in life. He identified that Sophie Lyonnais had sustained two different sets of fractures while still alive. He found that her sternum and five left ribs had been fractured between 36 hours and three days prior to her death. He found a fracture to the right mandible, which had been caused within hours prior to death, possibly immediately before death, but certainly while she was still alive. He was also able to find evidence of bruising to the left arm, back and chest, also caused in life. Two days after the firefighters had made such a horrific discovery, on the 22nd of September 2017, both Sam and Sabrina were arrested on suspicion of murder. On the 5th of January 2018, Sam entered his first defence statement in this case. In this statement, he claimed that Sophie had died accidentally as he was trying to extract information from her about Mark Walton. He said that Sophie had been made to sit in a bath full of water as part of the interrogation and that Sophie's head was forced under the water and held there while she was being questioned. He went on to say that this method was repeated on a number of occasions as a way of trying to get information out of Sophie, but he lost his temper and punched her in the face. Sophie's head then allegedly hit the tiles around the bathtub due to this punch, causing her to lose consciousness and slip under the water. Sam claimed in this defense statement that he then attempted to revive her. He claims that he hadn't intended to kill her or cause any serious injury. In a different account, Sam claims that he lost control. On the 12th of March 2018, Sam contacted the prosecution through his lawyers and offered to plead guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter, though that plea offer was rejected. In this second defence statement, he claims that the first statement he'd given wasn't true and that he'd accepted the blame in an effort to protect Sabrina. He claims in the second statement that he had gone to bed on the evening of the 18th of September and was woken up by Sabrina who told him that Sophie was lying in the bath but wasn't breathing. He went on to claim that he tried to revive Sophie, but was unable to do so successfully. Now, it is important to note that both Sabrina and Sam pleaded guilty on the charge of perverting the course of justice by virtue of the roles they had played in attempting to dispose of Sophie's body in the fire. Both Sabrina and Sam blamed each other for Sophie's murder. Sam confessed that he was present during the brutal interrogations that he and Sabrina had subjected Sophie to, but denied using any violence against her himself. He said that he had been there while Sabrina had assaulted Sophie and that in the days before her death, around the 13th of September, Sophie had suffered injuries to her legs and that Sabrina had assaulted her with a cable. Sam accepted that he knew that Sophie was so badly injured that she was unable to stand or walk properly and he knew that she needed medical assistance. 
but didn't contact a doctor or take her for a medical treatment. Further, Sam confessed to being present when Sophie was in the bath and that he held her head under the water in an effort to extract a confession, and he admitted that he didn't seek medical attention following that torture either. Sam said that he knew that Sabrina had been violent to Sophie and that she might be violent again, and that he should have and could have purchased a ticket for Sophie to return back home to France, but didn't. According to court documents, quote, Sam had denied being involved in any of the assaults or the acts of torture leading up to the death. He said he was a moderating influence in the interrogations, as could be seen and heard on the recordings. He denied any ill treatment of Sophie Lyonnais, apart from the interrogations. He said he had not known what had happened during the night until Sabrina had woken him the next day, repeatedly saying, what have I done? He then saw Sophie's body lifeless in the bath. He said he had not been aware of any assaults carried out by Sabrina on Sophie Lyonnais that night. When he saw her apparent lifeless body in the bath, he commenced CPR and said he had not called 999 because he didn't want to stop doing CPR. He said that his actions after the death, being involved in the burning of the body and lying to the police, were designed to protect Sabrina in an effort to keep the family together. The judge found in Sam's case that, quote, whatever the extent of the influence Sabrina exerted over Sam, he was an intelligent and well-educated man who knew that Sophie Lyonnais was being assaulted, knew that she needed medical attention, and did nothing. He was aware of the bizarre conduct exhibited by Sabrina, and not only did nothing to stop it, but lied to the authorities to disguise her behaviour. Further, and of vital importance, he played an active role in the interrogation sessions. He could not be said to be under compulsion or coercion, even if he was not the main protagonist. And in Sabrina's case, the judge found, quote, that there was no reliable evidence of any sexual abuse of her children. Whilst her mental illness was genuine, he found that she was driven by a desire to exact revenge upon the father of her younger child. She had been described as intelligent, calculating and manipulative, and in the judge's view, capable of deliberate dishonesty. He found that the intentional and sustained violence and cruelty was based on a desire for revenge, which means that the delusions have much less significance than might otherwise be the case in determining culpability. There was psychiatric evidence that the mental disorder from which she suffered did not explain violence or cruelty as a response to those delusional beliefs. Sabrina and Sam were found guilty of murder and received the sentence of a minimum of 30 years behind bars. As they were being sentenced, the judge told them, quote, I'm sure on all the evidence, you were both involved in torturing Sophie in the bath in the lead up to her death, in making her think that she would drown unless you gave her information you wanted, which was not in her power to give because it did not exist. The suffering and the torture you put her through before her death was prolonged and without pity. Sophie actually wrote a letter which she had her defense team read out during the sentencing hearing. It reads, Dear Sophie, may peace be with you. First of all, I wish everyone, including Sophie, especially her parents and family who are suffering badly, to know how deeply sorry I am for what happened to Sophie. We shared many good times together, as well as pains until things went terribly wrong, and it ended up in this horrendous tragedy. I think of you every day, and I am shocked and sad that you are not part of this world anymore. It feels like a horrible dream to me that I wish I could just wake up from. Every day I live with sadness and sorrow, I am suffering every day thinking of you and what happened to you that dreadful night. I only wish that I could turn the clock back so that it never happens and you would still be alive with us today. I will now live without hope and I can't ever imagine ever being happy again. 
I struggle every day and I am very disappointed in myself. Sophie, I wish things could have been different and I hope that you rest in peace with God. With deepest regrets, Sabrina Coudier. That letter in itself really, really gets to me because she's making herself the victim here and she's making it all about her and how she's got no hope anymore and she's got not got this, not got that and how life's so difficult for her when she's the one who committed murder and she's the one who ruined and tortured this poor girl um, and she read this out loud in front of Sophie's family. The disrespect, the absolute disrespect and I would have been so angry if I was in that courtroom um, they would have had to send me out. I just, that, it just makes me so angry, that letter. Sophie's mother spoke with the media following the trial. Let's take a listen to what she said. Intérieurement, c'est très dur. C'est très dur de s'abstenir et de rester calme. Plusieurs fois, j'ai été euh, extrêmement énervée euh, à leur sauter dessus parce que, voilà, ils ont fait du mal à ma fille, ils ont pris la vie de ma fille. C'est un cauchemar. C'est irréaliste. Irréaliste. Pour moi, c'est. Il n'y a même pas de mots pour qualifier tout, tout ce qui s'est passé. C'est théâtral, enfin, c'est de l'imagination pure et simple. Ça a été très choquant et euh, plusieurs fois, euh, j'avais euh, le cœur qui se soulevait euh, d'entendre toutes ces menaces, les claques. C'était vraiment. Euh, je dirais que c'est invivable. C'est très très dur, émotionnellement c'est très très dur. Je suis là pour, euh, pour ma fille, pour, pour le respect de ma fille et pour savoir vraiment ce qui s'est passé. C'est mon devoir de maman euh, d'être là et d'assister à ce procès. Il y aurait la peine de mort, moi je l'ai, comme j'ai toujours dit dans ma famille, je les ferai brûler à la Jeanne d'Arc. Ouais. Vivant, ouais. au poteau comme Jeanne d'Arc. C'est tout ce qu'ils méritent. C'est peut-être cruel ce que je dis, mais ce qu'ils ont fait, c'est encore plus cruel. Il bah, n'y a eu jamais de fausses idées. Bon, euh, Sophie a toujours été euh, discrète avec moi et à chaque fois que je l'avais au téléphone, même quand c'était peu, elle me rassurait en me disant que tout allait bien. Parce que moi, je lui posais régulièrement la question. Euh, je pense qu'elle nous a caché toutes ces choses pour... Euh, pour nous éviter le malheur en fait, pour pas qu'on qu s'angoisse pour elle, pour nous protéger en fait, oui. Que... Mais j'aurais bien voulu un petit signe d'alerte, simplement, euh, maman ça va pas, euh, maman il y a quelque chose qui se passe de grave. J'aurais essayé de faire mon possible de mon côté, euh, bah, j'aurais tout fait pour venir la chercher. Ouais. Bah, maintenant je me dis avec le recul que j'aurais peut-être pu insister euh, avoir davantage plus d'explications avec Sabrina et puis euh, avais, moi j'y avais de faire, demandé de faire rentrer Sophie plusieurs fois et maintenant avec le recul je me suis dit euh, si Sophie aurait pu me donner un petit geste euh, de désespoir j'aurais pu essayer de mon côté euh, d'aller chercher Sophie vous voyez ça, ça vient de Sophie c'est la dernière chose de Sophie qui a été retrouvée dans les cendres les policiers anglais me l'ont donné la première fois que je suis allée à Londres. Ils l'ont nettoyé, nettoyé, ouais. et ils m'ont demandé si je la voulais. Ouais. Il y avait toujours là qu'ils ont retrouvé dans les cendres, au bout de son doigt. Près du cœur, voilà. Même si elle est dans la tête, elle est là. We can only hope that the family of Sophie are able to find justice and peace with the conviction and are able to move forward, keeping Sophie's loving memory close to their hearts.
And that's everything I have for you in this case. Make sure you leave a comment down below telling me what you thought of this case, your thoughts and opinions. Don't forget to subscribe and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new Curious Case video, a true crime video. A special thanks to Skillshare for sponsoring this episode. Make sure you go get your um, special offer down below. In the, it's at the top of the description and at the top of the pinned comments. You can also join our Discord server. A link is down below too. And again, a special thanks to Doctors Hondas for uh, joining me on this video to talk about the disorder folly ado. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. A special thank you to all of my Patreon members for helping keep this channel afloat, but especially thank you to my lead investigators for all of your support. If you'd like to support this channel for less than $5 a month, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash it's Joshua Miles. For less than $5 a month, you'll get early access to videos and access to scripts and also polls on cases. If you or someone you know has been affected by issues covered in our programming, including this episode, then please use the link in the description for information, advice and support.